Hey, Nora. Hey, Sandy. What's up? What's going on? How you doing? Oh, I'm okay. I feel like, doesn't it just kind of feel like everything sucks? Like, I'm just back there again. <laughs> yeah. It is. It does feel like everything sucks. And it, it just like, I don't know, it's the, it's the summer too. Like, I want to be able to feel like super happy, but it just feels like we're in super dire straits with like everything. There was a a climate uh, bill in the United States that failed uh, this week in a massive way. Uh, and it's like, oh, yeah, cool. That's, yeah, that's bad. Um, let's uh, put that right beside all the other things that suck. It's great. <laughs> you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, and it's it's also kind of like it's, it's all of the forces of feeling demobilized and feeling, um, you know, angry at how things are in the world. And I I feel also like this is where social media like gives us one glimpse into like the kind of world that there is. But then you go outside and you realize that there's a completely different world out there that maybe you have a connection to or maybe you don't have a connection to. But it just feels like there's so many different speeds. People are operating at so many different speeds. But there's this general like, oh, my God, that's really hard to escape. That feels really brutal. And maybe it's also just because, you know, it's hot. And when it gets hot, I don't know about you, but I certainly like when it gets unseasonably hot, it's like I can't stop thinking about things like the massive heat wave in Europe or massive heat waves in other parts of the world that have been in the news for months now. And it's just like, Oh my God, like we really are fucking this stuff up. <laughs> so that's where I'm at. <laughs> yeah. And then did you see the news, like the the latest uh, kind of photos of our universe situation that was released uh, this week? I did. And I want to give a shout out to everyone who looked at them and was like, yeah, whatever. Because I was kind of like that. <laughs> okay. So that sort of stuff makes me feel like you know, you you look at all the stuff that's happening around us and you're like, yo, we are like specks of sand yeah. and we suck at being specks of sand next to other specks of sand. <laughs> like, yeah. We just can't even be specks of sand um, peacefully next to other specks of sand. And that that is a depressing and disappointing thought. And so, you know, I'm I'm an optimist, so I don't live there, but I go there every once in a while. And I have <laughs> been there a couple times this week. I'm like, damn, we suck at being insignificant and like inconsequentially insignificant. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but in those pictures, who knows? Maybe there's another fail sun planet out there that's worse than ours. Okay. <laughs> um, you know, it's, you know, it's really funny also this week that it's just like another, another sign of like, of like, what is going on? Is this, am I being punked? Did you, did you see uh, the, the new party that launched in Manitoba? Oh, what? No. Yeah, that seems to be, I mean, somebody correct me if I'm wrong, but seems to be named after a fucking pipeline. <laughs> Sorry, what? Yeah, the Keystone Party of Manitoba. <laughs> Jeez. That's what we need right now. Hey, but here's a question. Why the fuck are they so active and we aren't? <laughs> yeah, that's another thing I thought. 
immediately after I saw it, I was like, mm. <laughs> like I could rag on this, but they did it. So there's that. Anyway, there is that. <laughs> what a great way to start episode 203, 204. I don't know where we're at. Um, <laughs> we're, we're in our sad period, everyone. Um, no, let's not be sad. Let's be gracious. Can we thank some people? I, I have some bad, bad news on that front. Ah, <laughs> oh, damn. <laughs> okay, well, I can still be gracious. I can still be grateful to all of the people who continue to support us uh, week to week and make this podcast run. So thank you to all of you. Though we have nobody new to thank this week, that doesn't mean that all of y'all shouldn't be um, thought of and thanked uh, immensely for your contributions. Thank you. Yeah, thank you all so much. We love it and we love you. And we were trying to get a live show together. It doesn't look like it's going to work, but it certainly gave me the push that I need to get some stuff scheduled for the fall. So while we keep talking about this and we haven't delivered... Dear listener, I promise you there will be some shit in the fall. It's going to be great. Woo. Okay. So we have a few things that we want to talk to to you about today, but they're all kind of related to the same thing, which has been suggested to us by a listener, Jess Rogers. Jess Rogers. Thanks. You got it. We're going to be talking about (laughs) free speech. Free speech. Now, uh, okay, so there was a Press Progress article that um, corrected or, or, I don't know, went deeper into some statistics around whether or not Canadians are worried about our free speech. And uh, overwhelmingly, uh, Canadians are not worried about our free speech. Only one in 10 Canadians is worried about free speech. And that uh, was important because it was in the context of Pierre Polyever making free speech a big part of his campaign. Everyone remembers that thing is still going on, run by that guy. And it's an interesting frame to talk about how Canadians are not concerned about free speech. Of course, it's a poll. So like, that's what the poll says. Fine. But I, 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 I don't think that we, I don't think that we shouldn't be unconcerned about free speech in this country. In fact, I think we have a bit of a crisis of free speech. And so this episode is going to talk about free speech as per the request from the listener who made it. And, um, and we're going to talk about free speech, uh, both in like the classic sense of the term, the mainstream sense of the term, how the right has taken it over. But more importantly, what actual free speech should look like uh, up to and including uh, the way that we operate uh, in in civil society, in the workplace, in our communities, et cetera. Yeah. So where to begin? There's so many places that we could start in talking about free speech and why people should be concerned. We could talk about the fact that the RCMP um, recently, there was a bunch of files that were released uh, about uh, the RCMP spying on people who were making public health care happen back in the 70s. We could talk about the fact that there was files that were released more recently about um, uh, the uh, RCMP spying on uh, people who were doing black activism in Canada. We can talk about the fact that uh, what has happened in Wet'suwet'en uh, when people have uh, not only um, exercised their free speech, but but are literally following the laws of the land um, and how that has been clamped down 
We could talk about uh, what has happened with respect to the Emergencies Act um, being evoked for the first time and the kind of response or non-response it got and what it forebodes for the future. There are so much, um, uh, so many examples. We could talk about campuses and uh, the free speech clampdown on a particular subject matter that uh, researchers want to study, uh, whether that look like um, Palestine or whether it look like the uh, years and years and years of how uh, people who wanted to study blackness in Canada have been refused access, um, refused funding uh, in order to do that. Um, those are forms of free speech uh, issues that we should all be concerned about. Uh, there's so much to talk about. And so uh, people may not be concerned about free speech, but they should be. And I'm not sure if Pierre wants to protect all the stuff that I just named. So, <laughs> well, I mean, you do know. Yeah, I'm pretty sure he doesn't. You know, he doesn't give a rat's ass about that. Yeah, I think that like all of the ways that you just define fr uh, attacks on free speech um, and it's not just speech. It's also freedom of expression and association, different kinds of liberties that we have enshrined in the Charter of Rights of Freedoms that, you know, oftentimes none of that stuff gets considered when we're talking about like trademark free speech and trademark free speech, I think, is useful to perhaps define because I can imagine some people hearing that list and saying, but none of those are really free speech issues, uh, even though they are. <laughs> but oftentimes we get we get wrapped around this logic that free speech is the right to criticize government without, I don't know, being guillotined or shot or arrested. And like we can talk about the limits of criticizing government in Canada um, that, you know, I, to think of someone who has criticized government and is now serving a prison sentence as a result. Uh, yeah, that I can't immediately think of anybody. Clamping down on speech can happen in so many different ways, depending on the norms, uh, the accepted kind of practices that exist within a, within a society. And in Canada, there are so many more effective ways to kill your critics than to literally kill them. You don't have to physically kill critics. You can freeze them out. You can arrest them for other things. You can make it impossible for them to, like, to, to be platformed or to get access to a wide audience. And those kinds of attacks on free speech they accumulate and they create this world where actually if you're trying to criticize the government and you have very legitimate criticisms that your criticisms can be all founded within, you know, any number of totally legitimate research or whatever, it can be very, very difficult. And oftentimes the, 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 the big, the loudest critics that we hear, and let's say critics from the left, because then we can talk a little bit about critics from the right, but oftentimes critics from the left tend to still buy into liberalism. And so the way that criticism happens is like, well, Justin Trudeau has done this. I disagree with it. However, there's still some sort of ideal, like we can still reform prisons. We can still reform the economy to make sure that uh, poor people get more money. We can still tax the rich and, the, and, and maybe make some of the income inequality problems go away. But the fundamental understanding is that we can still fix this situation because we have a, we have a, a fidelity or a loyalty or a belief in liberal democracy being worthwhile and 
and worth saving and whatever, functional, the best of any option, whatever. And if you start to go outside of critics who like challenge the very basis of the system, uh, the the party starts to really get quite small. Like there's not many of us that that make those kinds of critiques. Um, the the most obvious, of course, are indigenous activists who challenge the legitimacy of Canada itself. And in those situations, then we see direct attacks on their free speech, direct jailed, like resulting in, in, in jail and fines and all this kind of thing, attack on free speech. And activists fighting against anti-black racism. And and we know, like, as you say, that there's surveillance and that there's um, that there's other ways that government are are paying attention, watching very closely to what, uh, you know, black radicals might be saying or organizing or challenging in terms of the authority of the state. And I, I think it's like really important to remind ourselves that it's those fundamental attacks on the state that the state is most allergic to and most interested in crushing because so many of the critiques, uh, the critiques of, of the existence of Canada, the, the critiques of, of, of the, the the ongoing colonial project, that kind of thing, are so obvious and so um, like they would be easy to convince a, a mass audience of people that there is absolutely a desire of the state to crush those voices. And then so then the question is, well, how do they do it? If, if not only the RCMP and the RCMP is not the most common way that they're doing this, how else are we witnessing attacks on free speech in this country? Yeah, another way that is um, that might not be quite so obvious until you start to really think about it is how we control what sorts of uh, job actions people can take when they are um, facing a really uh, draconian and unfair employment situation. And, you know, thinking about the pandemic years up until today, from the beginning of the pandemic years up until today, I, you know, it's it's remarkable to me that there hasn't been um, uh, certain types of, of strikes, like certain types of wildcat strikes that uh, we've seen in our history before. Um, I was reading something that was written by a nurse recently who was uh, quite frustrated about the fact that, yeah, people seem to be really frustrated about airports falling apart and about the falling apart of the of Rogers fucking internet infrastructure. Uh, but people don't seem to have the same level of frustration around uh, emergency rooms having to be shut down and the way that our healthcare system is really struggling in this period um, that we're in right now. And in making this this argument, uh, part of the crux of her argument was that this is so, so important for everyone to pay attention to and to speak about because nurses cannot do anything more than what they are doing at this moment. They are not allowed to strike. And yeah, I mean, they're not allowed to strike. And there's uh, a lot of ways that workers are controlled into how what sorts of job actions they can take, how they can express their frustration with their employers, how they can express their frustration with the system. Sure, that's all true. But one of the the fundamental freedoms and liberties that we are supposed to enjoy in this country is the freedom to associate and the freedom to protest and the right to free speech and 
using what like using your ability to remove your labor to take some sort of action to go on strike even when it is technically not allowed is a way that you can exercise your freedoms and we should be thinking about those things when we are in dire situations like we are now because i mean think about it emergency rooms are shutting down that is that is that's a stunning thing that is happening uh and i don't know if there's like a rule book somewhere that says emergency rooms are allowed to shut down emergency services are allowed to shut down under these circumstances in fact I'm certain that there isn't. The fact of the matter is that these things are going to shut down when they have to shut down because of uh, technical issues, because of infrastructural issues, because Rogers is, you know, working on some sort of maintenance and forgot to plug something in. I don't know. Those things are going to shut down if they have to shut down technically. We are a part of the systems that make these things work. Human beings, us, and we matter Like what we need in terms of our livelihoods, what we need in terms of the infrastructure for how these things are supposed to work, we have a say in those things and we should be able to put our voices forward in whatever way that we need to, to make the system listen to us. And the fact that we don't have that understanding in a lot of sectors uh, in Canada, like we are more willing to accept that Air Canada will shut down you know, how we'll cancel how many ever flights or that Rogers will just fucking fuck off for a, a couple days than to say, actually, I'm going to strike even when it's not allowed. That's a problem. That is a problem. Well, and it's even more bizarre when you think about the fact that it's workers that are even keeping these things together in the first place. So, like, especially in the healthcare system, like, we know that the healthcare system is on threadbare and that it is literally only the dedication of the workers who are there right now that are keeping it all together. It has nothing to do with politicians, has nothing to do with corporations. It is the liter- like the literal will of the workers to make it work. And so then why wouldn't those workers also have the moral right, moral responsibility to then withdraw their work if they need to leverage something over government? Like, you know, things are just so they're so upside down right now where you have uh, like labor leadership appealing to someone like Doug fucking Ford who cannot be appealed to. You have corporations with runaway profits and underneath the machine of government and underneath the machine of these profits is all working people. Now, not all working people are organized and that is difficult because if you're not organized, if you're not in a union, you don't necessarily have democratic structures to be able to take actions like a wildcat. Um, But I mean, that isn't to say it's impossible. You just have to build some sort of democratic structure, whether that is to go out and fully unionize or to just create some sort of council. I mean, it's not, you don't have to play by a, a, a very legal specific rule book, but people need to remember that modern labor negotiations, labor relations in this country are the result of, of decades of destabilizing uh, wildcat strikes that were happening in the it, like before the 1940s in this country from workers who were fed up, who were overworked, who were desperately poor and who refused to take it anymore. And finally, at the at the Supreme Court level, Ivan Rand, uh, the, the justice that, that that created the basically the foundation of modern industrial relations in Canada, 
came up with this compromise. And the compromise was workers would not walk off the job, but there would always have to be a mechanism to deal with workers' concerns. And that mechanism was collective bargaining. Now, I don't know at what point workers are supposed to still continue to honor their side of this bargain when it is so clearly the case that that no one in power gives a fuck about workers. And not only do they not give a fuck about workers, they're not afraid of workers. So let's talk about free speech in that context. Free speech in that context is doing doing shit that's 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 morally correct, that's necessary, that's defensible, that's going to help people, that may be illegal, that may be weird that maybe that maybe something that someone did in 19 fucking 28 and it hasn't been done maybe uh many times since that that workers actually take that action and the fact that we don't have any of that in canada is a huge example of an attack on free speech because the structures have been created to tell nurses and teachers and healthcare other healthcare workers or or grocery workers or transit workers or, or mining workers whatever that you can't just walk off the job it's like you fucking can you fucking can it's going to be illegal and you're going to have a fight but like what what about this moment is not the time to fight yeah nothing yeah exactly at a time like right now when uh, people are in dire straits, the situation with inflation, as you say, with the profits that some of these companies are making off of the inflation situation, which is something that we should maybe talk about in another episode, it's like uh, now is the time to to take these sorts of actions, to push this sort of um, refusal, this politics of refusal forward. But there's all of this... I don't know, self, well, it's not self-imposed um, resistance. It's, I sometimes thinking about it that way because I live in a world where like everything is possible because I've confronted this before. I've confronted the, 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 the issue of not being allowed to do something and jumping over that into the space of nothing, none of the rules um, are rules that you need to follow if the system does not support you if the system makes no sense to you of course why would you follow such rules so it feels to, to someone who's on the other side of that it can feel like these things are are self-imposed but no the system is created in such a way to make people feel like these things are impossible to make you feel as though you cannot raise your voice and say these things even though you can watch around you um as uh, as corporations fail to meet the standards that they're meant to meet in order to serve the public in all of the different places where we have siphoned off responsibility from the public sector onto the private sector they fail and there's we just watch them fail and watch them continue to make profits and watch them um, say mea culpa or something on uh, on the news and send you a bunch of fucking annoying emails about it. And and that's it. But somehow you as a person and the people that you work with uh, are not able um, to take those same sorts of actions. And that's just total bullshit. Like the world that we live in today um, you know, the, the structure of, uh, our, uh, of the public sector of public policy should be responding to the, to the, um, to the crisis situations that we find ourselves in today. And they're not, they're not. And if they're not, we should be responding. Yeah. <laughs> we, we should absolutely be responding. 
And the only reason we're not is because we don't think it's possible or we're afraid of what's going to happen. And people should be, you know, being afraid of what's going to happen is a reasonable thing to be. It's a reasonable and rational thing to be because you can, you can take a look at where people have taken such actions and have been super repressed by the state. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I know that that's certainly something that people should be worried about to some extent, but like, we're also in this downward spiral and unless Unless a mass group of us fucking pulls the brake, no one else is going to do it. Like, no, this has been one of the most frustrating parts of the pandemic is watching people appeal to the likes of Doug Ford or Justin Trudeau or Jason Kenney or Francois Legault or John Horgan or Stephen McNeil or whoever the fuck replaced him. I mean, you can't there's nothing to appeal to They're Everything they're doing is out of a playbook. Uh, everything that they're doing today, everything that they did last year, we could see fucking coming. I mean, my God, this podcast has talked about this stuff now for, I don't know, a hundred episodes or something. And so what, what does it take to then pull that break? Well, this is where we need to assert our, our freedom of speech. And, and this is also why I think that, um, the right has been so good at owning what free speech is because they have this classic understanding of free speech where it's like the government's telling me what to do. They can't tell me what to do. Therefore, that's free speech. And that's aided by, I don't know, an, a generally ignorant journalist core that should the fuck know better, but is actually absolutely implicated in crushing freedom of speech and crushing dissent. Uh, I mean, as a, as a structure, I know, of course, there's some journalists that like, you know, do what they can to push back. But by and large, journalism in this country is also used to crush freedom of speech, ironically. And it leaves us in this world where on the left, uh, well, we go back to this this survey that nine out of 10, I don't know what the fuck who ran the survey. I don't know if the survey is any good. Maybe it's the best survey that's ever been run in the entire fucking world. But for nine out of 10 Canadians to say that there's no attacks on free speech in this country now, given everything, everything that you can look around at and go, oh my God, uh, that's really weird to me, frankly. It's very weird. And also then, if that's the case, then how could you ever understand how the far right is having such success using this rhetoric? Like, I fully get it. I look at the rhetoric and I'm like, yeah, obviously. But it gets warped and used and transformed in ways that then turns average people into being really angry. I mean, here's a very uh, funny example of that. Sandy, did you see this past weekend? Justin Trudeau had to cancel an event at a brewery because the Freedom Convoy kind of shut it down. I saw a really quick um, tweet about it, but I didn't actually read the news article. Yeah. So, I mean, people were responding to it as if there was like, oh, my God, again, free speech in this country is under attack from the Freedom Convoy. The prime minister can't even do political events. This is bullshit. All this shit. And it's like, oh, my God, what? I mean, like, fuck, <laughs> OK, I guess. But did you catch where this event was? No. Where was it? It's in a town called Emron, Ontario, which is uh, not far from Ottawa. Um, and that might mean something to you. That was the town or the community where the Freedom Convoy actually set up camp. <laughs> oh. So, again, you have like liberals, liberals, big L and small L, 
cynically using these kinds of things and being like, oh, the Freedom Convoy is attacking our free speech. It's like you you went to the fucking dragon's den. Like you should have been like, fuck these guys. We're having our event anyway because we know where we are and they can fuck themselves. No, you're going to turn it into, a, oh, my God, these guys are, are are trying to destroy everything that's good about liberalism, blah, blah, blah. And it's like. Can we think a bit harder, folks? I mean, I didn't even see, I didn't look at all the articles, so it's possible I missed it. But the couple of articles that I did read didn't even mention that connection. I was like, Embrun, I remember that name from somewhere. And I was like Googling, oh, yeah, they literally, that was literally where they retreated from Ottawa. <laughs> like, oh, my God. That's ridiculous. And then this is this is the example that we have of attacks on free speech. The prime minister himself. It's like, sorry, guys, the prime minister cannot have his free speech attacked. Like, even if the freedom convoy doesn't let him speak, that is still not his free speech being attacked. No, that is that is awful. <laughs> sorry, I'm just kind of um, a little bit stunned at that sort of liberal frame that um, that it is Justin Trudeau himself who's having his freedom of speech curtailed because it is directly out of the playbook of Trump, isn't it? Like what a, what a weird, what a weird thing to try to play. Like, I I mean, that's exactly, perhaps they are like trying to, to, to replicate the successes of Trump and of Pierre by saying that Justin Trudeau's uh, free speech has been hindered by the freedom convoy, but come on, like the, the sort of, mirroring of the far right that the center and liberals do every once in a while. Like it's just, it doesn't work. Stop it. Stop that. (laughs) Stop doing that. I mean, he did just get a very bad haircut. So there's another piece of evidence that he's trying to become Trump-esque. I didn't want that to be mentioned on this podcast at all. (laughs) And yet, you know, we got 31 fucking minutes through the way and you had to fucking go and do that, didn't you? That I... (laughs) I'm not saying nothing more. I'm not saying anything (laughs) more. Thank you. No more on that. In a world where we, like, don't understand what free speech is, uh, where the attacks on free speech are, like, Pierre Polyavre can come up and say, like, our free speech is under attack and no journalist is going to ask him, say, you know, um, are you referring to the protesters in Witsowitan? And no one's going to ask him the hard questions about what free speech is actually being curtailed and how it's being curtailed. No one's going to ask him. Surely you're responding to uh, some of the the uh, high profile um, repression against uh, certain uh, academics who have dared to um, put out research on Palestine. No one's going to ask him those questions. We're just going to continue to play his game on his game board that he created, wherein free speech means people make him feel him and his supporters feel badly about the reprehensible ideas that they hold dear and the reprehensible principles that inform um, conservatism. Like that, that is what that playbook is about, where people uh, who hold some of these reprehensible ideas, whether because they like principally believe them or because uh, they don't have a good, um, you know, underpinning understanding the way that the system is impacting them and their family. And so they've come to these conclusions about um, that are really ugly about other people um, that are reprehensible positions to hold, racist positions to hold, xenophobic positions to hold. 
or what what Pierre is doing, which is uh, more Trump-esque, which is uh, knowingly claiming that something is about free speech when it's like 100% not, those things are going to be successful because there's a vacuum uh, in our public discussion and cultural understanding of where the real issues with free speech lie. We have allowed the right to take up this space, even though the stuff that they're calling issues with free speech aren't real for the most part. Well, they're not real in the way that they frame it, that's for sure. And 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 they do it because they know it's popular and because they know it's catchy. And I, I've talked about this before with people, and I, I feel like I'm asked all the time, well, do you think then we can reclaim these terms on the left? Or is there or are they just too poisoned that there's not really any way to do that? I'm thinking back to the debates that that we had in the aftermath of the shooting at Charlie Hebdo, where twelve members of the staff there were shot and killed. And it became the high banner, high level. It became the global, I mean, Western rallying cry for free speech and, and an example of an attack on free speech. Here you had a, a members of a newspaper that routinely published really gross and shitty stuff um, murdered, murdered by opponents to what they were writing. And I, I'm thinking about that because, I mean, that was a long time ago. It was I, – I was <laughs> – after that that happened in 2015, I wrote an article that was called Beyond Freedom of Speech for White Men. And that's really what it comes down to, that the Western conceptualization of, of, of free speech is, is this like very specific, very narrow kind of free speech for white men, which is why someone like Justin Trudeau, who is literally the state. I mean, it's not literally the state. It's not fucking Louis XIV, but he's, I mean, <laughs> the prime minister, right, uh, can, can claim that freedom, his freedom of speech is under attack or people are attacking his freedom of speech or whatever. But like unless we break out of these narrow understandings of free speech, then we're never going to be able to talk about things like job actions or criticizing government or why, why does the Canadian media um, silence any, anyone who's critical at all of the, the foundational status quo, the foundations of what creates our status quo. We, we then immediately default to thinking of this very narrow version of free speech for white men, mostly white people as well, uh, and 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 then of course in that lens, then you can see well that makes sense then why nine out of ten Canadians are like no free speech isn't an issue free speech isn't under attack in this country so either you have like people feeling like their speech is totally free you're not going to get your head cracked in for saying something but then not making certain connections between uh, political uh, structural realities and then who ends up in jail right not getting outside of those confines you know Stephen Marr who's a, a journalist was has been calling um, Tamara Litch who's this freedom convoy lady uh, a political prisoner on Twitter and people have been pushing back on him being like what the fuck are you talking about um, for again using this very narrow kind of definition like this this person's being jailed because well, because she violated, I mean, various laws that were not about what she was protesting. But, you know, OK, that's a side. That's a side. But she's still against the state. Now she's in jail. Therefore, she's a political prisoner. But it's like, you know, show me a crime in this country that's not political. Show me uh, show me the speech that we consider to be unacceptable and how it gets marginalized out of school systems, out of universities, how the fuck we can have a serious adult conversation in many parts of this country about literally making it illegal to criticize Israel. I mean, that like is the best example of you're kidding, right? <laughs> like, 
And, and, and there's a consensus of that among members of all three parties. So again, like, I think that we need as left-wing people, we need to be very clear about these terms. I don't know if we can take them back or remix them or make them into our own thing, but we need to certainly inject discussions into what freedom of speech is to be far expanded from the way that the Pierre Polyevers of the world are going to use it or from the way that liberals are going to use it, imagining that, well, of course we have free speech, Nora, because you've never been shot for what you've written. <laughs> it's like, okay, <laughs> whatever, right? You've never been jailed for what you've written. Okay, that's th- that's too narrow. That's too fucking narrow. And they need it to be that narrow because then we, we aren't actually asking the kinds of questions that we've asked on this podcast. I really like what you're calling for here essentially is an expansion of the, the definition of free speech or a deepening, not even an expansion, sorry, a deepening of our understandings of the issues surrounding free speech, freedom of expression, and our liberties on the left. Because otherwise... We just become um, where, where we are right now, which is just people who are frustrated and who use our free speech that we're not worried about to express our frustration. Oh, my God. Fuck you, Rogers. Oh, my God. Fuck you, government. Oh, my God. Fuck you, uh, Rob Ford. Whatever. Like, you know, we use our speech to, 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 to be upset about the thing. But we never take the next step and are not concerned about how all of the um, structures around us are preventing us from taking the next step because, in part, uh, our understanding of free speech is so limited. And that is, I think, the crux of what we're trying to get at here in this discussion. You know, so much of what we do on the left, so much of change-making work is built around principles that we hold, what principles we deeply believe in that help us to understand that, you know, no one should have to live in a world without access to healthcare, without access uh, to food, without access to shelter. These things that then help us build uh, a, a set of um, ideas around policies that we would want, a set of ideas of how we would want our societies to be shaped. Um, a set of ideas about, you know, what it is, the fuck that we're doing here and whether even that's okay. We need those principles to be deepened uh, for the issue of free speech because the shallowness, the superficial, the superficial way that we discuss and understand it, um, perhaps that is what leads to a survey that says, that most people aren't concerned about free speech in this country when it is so obvious to some of us that free speech is a major, major issue in this country. We, we have to get our principles straight and we have to be um, uh, deeper. We have to be deeper. We have to deepen um, our understanding of what it is we are talking about when we are referencing this um, really simple to understand but actually quite complicated issue. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I love that you went there because when you, when we start to actually think through freedom of speech, uh, it does mean that there needs to be certain levels of security that we all have to be able to express ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so then then you're starting to think of, well, I mean, obviously, colonialism and racism, that's going to right off the bat 
dislevel the playing field for how much security you have to challenge the state. Okay, so good. Poverty. <laughs> you have someone who's in poverty, not only are they not going to have access to the ways to challenge state decisions or state, uh, I, I don't know, directives or ideas, but they also are trying to like just survive. So that's a, that's another group of people. People in poverty are not going to have the same ability to have their freedom of speech expressed than fucking, you know, anyone with some money. But then you can start talking about access to platforms and who has like then inflation becomes an attack on free speech. And, you know, you got a government that's just like rubbing their hands because it doesn't matter because people are so busy. They're so afraid they're not going to go on strike. They're not going to refuse services. They're not going to sit down in the middle of a road and block traffic because they're desperate because they're, they're trying to get to the next paycheck. Right. Like, because they're docile in Canada. Like there's there's like docility is something that's actually transmitted to us through all of our cultural agencies and media and, and corporate rule. Income inequality is an attack on free speech because then all of a sudden you have the Galen Westons of the world that don't not only have total access to as much fucking free speech as they want, but through their literal personal decisions, they're grinding people into, into the ground, into poverty, into desperation. Uh, you know, mortgages are a trap. Like we can just go on and on and on and on. And and I think that it's just too easy to stand back and say the police are not going to arrest you for saying certain things without thinking about, well, actually, there are certain things that you can't say on television. Like, for sure, you'd be fucking gone. Like, just no one would ever hear from you again. Not you wouldn't be disappeared. You'd just be so marginalized. You'd never be heard from again. Uh, you can swarm people into silence. You can swarm people online into submission. You can attack people's freedom of uh, their own freedom of speech through other mechanisms, through 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 getting them fired, through getting them deplatformed. And then we start to police ourselves. And then what does free speech look like? It's only people that have access to money, that have stability, that have security, that actually can then express their opinions. And guess what kind of opinions those people are going to have by and large? They're going to be the ones who support fucking liberalism, the liberal state, Canada and all this kind of bullshit. So, I mean, you know, are we going to see Andrew Coyne uh, ever have his head ground into the uh, ground from a fucking cop boot? No, of course the fuck not. We will not see that. Andrew Coyne is not going to be one of these people whose freedom of speech will ever be attacked. But if you're attacking people's freedom of speech before they're even able to get the resources together to actually state something, well, then what the fuck kind of freedom of speech is that really? 